Good day. My name is Myra Thomas, and I'm editor of Bank Automation News. Recently, I had the pleasure of speaking with Jimmy Lenz, director of the Master of Engineering and Financial Technology and Master of Engineering and Cybersecurity, and Frank and Irene Salerno, visiting professor of financial economics at Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering in the Masters of Engineering programs in fintech and cybersecurity. He started his career as an equity and derivatives trader over 25 years ago. Jimmy found he reveled in fast-moving atmospheres that required both strategic thought and the ability to take immediate action. Jimmy was an early adopter of electronic trading and later, later algorithmic trading solutions. His success propelled him into a number of senior management roles in the financial in the financial community, including leading uh, NYSE broker dealer with foreign and domestic operations, chief risk officer and chief credit officer at a top three broker dealer, and the head of predictive analytics for one of the largest wealth management firms in the U.S. Jimmy holds an undergraduate degree from the University of South Carolina, Master of Science in Finance from Washington University in St. Louis, and Doctor of Business Administrative administration finance from Washington University's Olin Business School. Recently, we got a chance to talk about the unique partnership between Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. The FDIC recently announced that strategic partnership to support their technological innovation in the banking and financial services sector. Our uh, organization, Bank Automation News, recently had the chance to speak with Sultan Meiji the FDIC's first chief innovation officer pointed earlier this year. And he noted, and I quote, this exciting collaboration with Duke will amplify our efforts to drive innovation in the banking ecosystem and within the FDIC. We share a common interest to better understand the opportunities and the risks of new technologies and to build a first-of-its-kind strategic innovation program. Welcome, Jimmy. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with me today. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me today. This is, uh, this is always exciting to talk to people. Yeah. So, you know, I guess the best place to start is what exactly is a master in, master's in fintech? Sure. Um, great question, by the way, as an as a opener. The Master of Engineering in Financial Technology is um, almost one of a kind. There are only two engineering schools in the United States that offer a graduate degree like this. Um, there are, I know, several, several engineering schools that are trying. And so what we are doing is we're providing students with a background, um, and these are mainly students with quantitative undergraduate degrees. Some are coming from industry, though, with some industry experience, but um, with a, a little bit of a quantitative background in all cases, the tools necessary to move into fintech. And when I say move into fintech, I mean both the, uh, the, the traditional fintech companies, your Alipays, your Rocket Mortgages, your places like that, as well as traditional firms that are uh, kind of starting to, to uh, maybe move a little bit in that direction. You see some of the large banks and things like that making large acquisitions or trying to build things internally. Well, that's what we're, we're training students to do is to move into those roles. Sure, sure. So uh, talk to me a little bit about how engineering fits into fintech. Okay. Yeah, great question. Yeah, I was I mean- so hoping you would ask that. Um, so I previously have taught in business schools. And one of the things that I noticed about business schools, and hey, I, I can throw rocks because my graduate and doctorate are both from business schools. So um, I feel I can throw rocks a little bit. The the business schools are, are great. Um, they tend to teach in a very theoretical manner. Uh, 
engineering schools teach in a very applied manner, right? Engineers build things, they build bridges, they build buildings, they build software. And, and for fintech, this is something that is very applied. This isn't a theoretical realm. People are hiring students to build things, to create new uh, things, to develop new ideas into, into products that can be used, services that can be used. And so that's why engineering, uh, I think the, the fit in engineering is just perfect. When I had the opportunity to go to, uh, to, go to Duke in, in the engineering school, it, I just jumped at it because I knew this is where, this is where fintech really belonged. Sure, sure. And so, uh, you know, looking at this new partnership with the FDIC, you know, it's all, and, you know, Sultan's new role, it's all revolving around innovation. But what does innovation really mean in the banking system? I mean, that's yeah. our it, overarching uh, term. <laughs> uh, Sultan's great, by the way, in, uh, in, in, in that new role and kind of the way he thinks about it. But I think of, you know, fintech in general, um, fintech, I'll, put, I'll give you an analogy here. Fintech is to banking what Google is to the Internet. Um, not only is it a portal, but it's a, um, it's, it's a user-designed experience. And so this is, a, this is a very different way for, for banks to start thinking about things because in the past, banks have been kind of like a supermarket. You walk in and you take what's on the shelf. Well, FinTech has turned things around 180 degrees, right? Now you go in and you design the user experience that you want. You interact like you want, usually on a mobile device. So think of Rocket Mortgage. Why is Rocket Mortgage making over 50% of the loans in America today? Because you can do it on your phone and you do it when you want and how you want. You don't go into an office. You don't meet with a loan officer. You don't carry in, remember, bazillions of papers and all that. You don't do any of those things, right? It's a user design experience. And, and people have gotten used to that. People have gotten used to that from the way they interact on the internet, the way they buy things, the way they do everything. And so why should banking be any different? Well, it's not, of course. People are taking that and, and running with it. And so those companies that are becoming most successful are those companies that can allow users to define what their experience is going to be. They, they're no longer, you know, the, the grocery store. <laughs> Jimmy, okay. Well, I'm sorry about that. You dropped, okay. you dropped off for a second there. Um, so, you know, what role can automation play in this whole process? You know, yeah. what sort of technologies do you see rolling out that can facilitate this innovation at banking? There are a number of things that we're already seeing happening. So automation is being used in a lot of different ways. And it's being used both by fintech companies and by traditional companies are starting to embrace more and more automation. In the past, banking has relied on people. And when there was a problem, they brought more people in. Well, now fintech companies have started up and they've, one of the, one of the advantages they have is they automate a lot. They automate a lot of processes. Now, there are a couple of advantages doing this. And, you know, people see automation in a couple of different ways. A lot of people see it as eliminating jobs or just for efficiencies, but automation is actually uh, opens up a lot of a lot of new roles, and it's also a, a really nice risk mitigant. Um, the the regulators very rightly have said we want to see more automation. We want to see more repeatable processes. We want to see things that happen in in an automated fashion. And I think that's exactly the right tack to take. Um, what Sultan is doing and what he is exploring, I think, 
is partially automation and partially some of the new um, technologies that we see actually in finance and you know things like blockchain and some of the uh, digital currencies and some of those kinds of things that are being embraced, which are also elements of of this automated you know the uh, this increase in automation that we're seeing. Sure. Now, the funny thing is, you know, you're talking about this partnership and we're, you know, talking um, when I reported talk to Sultan, you know, getting the idea that the FDIC is looking at looking at itself as being the teacher, being the initiator of automation, cutting edge automation in an innovation in the banking system. Whereas, you know, traditionally the FDIC has been seen as a stopgap or a lifesaver to the banks or, you know, and other federal, you know, regulatory bodies, financial regulatory bodies are seen as adversaries oftentimes to financial institutions. So having the FDIC sort of come out saying, you know, here's our role, you know, sort of leading innovation seems kind of strange, correct? I mean, you know, do you get the sense that, you know, banks are going to buy into this process? It does seem kind of strange. <laughs> we'll admit that. I think there have been a lot of role changes since the financial crisis. And uh, where the FDIC has been seen as a stopgap, I think they've been seen as a little bit more of a partner than maybe some of the other regulatory agencies. And so I think there is at this point, uh, some, I think they're, they're more, banks are going to be more open to, to this kind of thing. The other thing about this is, is they are the FDIC. They are the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. As an insurer, this will also help them, right? So more automation, the, the quicker they can get information, the quicker they can help a bank that might be in distress. The, the fact that they see behind the curtains everywhere they're, they're amassing a lot of information, a lot of data, a lot of very dynamic data, or they, at least they can have a lot of dynamic data. They may know a bank has a problem before the bank does, uh, and they can step in a little bit quicker. I think in their role at, as an insurer, the fact that they're pushing automation, the fact that they're pushing innovation, I think that is, uh, it, it helps both them and their banking partners. And I think the banking partners will see that. I really do believe that they're, the, the, pl- the part that the, the FDIC plays in the banking system um, allows them kind of a little bit more leeway than, say, if it was one of the other, other regulators. Sure, sure. So give me the skinny on, you know, what actually is happening with Duke and the FDIC. What- yeah, we, um, wow. I, it's, um, I think we were all amazed at how fast we hit the ground running. So we, uh, we announced the partnership and we, uh, we, that was in late spring. Um, within a month, they had already uh, basically formulated a couple of internships they wanted our students to work on. Uh, the, the, the issue that we had this year was we actually had a lot more internship offers for students than we had students for internships. Uh, but we, we ended up working with the FDIC on three different internships. So they decked it up that fast. Uh, they already have people assigned to it from the FDIC. We work with them to articulate the questions a little bit. And the students have been uh, reporting out uh, almost, uh, I guess, reporting out weekly um, to the, the sponsors at the FDIC, teams of students uh, that are working on these problems. One of the problems uh, I know has been adjusted a little bit because it had so much interest within the FDIC that they, uh, they met with some of the, the heads of uh, various departments because of the early findings. So 
we hit the ground running really quickly. Um, the students will continue to work on these internship projects for the, um, you know, kind of the remainder of the summer it, it, through, uh, through the end of uh, July. Uh, and then I think in the, uh, in the fall, we have a, a couple of more things, uh, that are, that are on, uh, on, on deck right now to, um, to be initiated. I see this as an ongoing. I think we will continue to, uh, the FDIC will continue to, uh, to work with us on all types of, uh, new projects and initiatives. So we, a couple of our projects are, uh, more based on the legacy, upgrading some of the legacy, and some of them are based on emerging technologies. So it's they're using us kind of across the board. So you're talking about, obviously, legacy systems for the FDIC itself, I would assume. Right. Uh, these, are, these are, I would say, uh, yes, uh, legacy systems and kind of some of the, um, just the, the things that banks are going to be saddled with for a long time, uh, so different ways to think about them, different uh, approaches to take to to move things forward, and so we're we're looking at some uh, very very data centric approaches to uh, you know to answer certain questions and to move things in maybe a little bit direction different direction. Yeah, I'm always amazed too when I talk to bankers, and I've talked to a lot of bankers, <coughs> and <laughs> even big you know global banks, that when you get behind the scenes, you pull back the curtain, that there's still a lot of manual processes that exist, you know, batch systems and whatever else that they're doing behind the scenes that you would just be perplexed by. So, you know, automation efforts coming from the FDIC, you know, to push this it seems like a, you know, a really timely thing. But do you think there are any sort of specific challenges within the banking world that the FDIC specifically wants to address? I think there are a lot. Uh, they, they are. I mean, Sultan, you've met him. You've talked to him. He he has a plate that's you know just gigantic. So he's always thinking about a lot of different things. And by the way, he's an engineer too. Uh, so he thinks about things in in a really really large way. And so uh, I think there are a lot of legacy things that they're looking at. They also have to be very very cognizant. And I know they are very very cognizant. Of the difference, as you mentioned, you talk to all kinds of bankers, you know, global banks, but there's also these 5,000 community banks that they deal with that have very, very different resources and resource constraints and things like that. And so they're really trying to think, I think, across the constituency. And one of the things that they've kind of tasked us to do is to think across that constituency so that we can, you know, in, it basically improve the improve things for, for all of their uh, of all of their their clients, rather than you know just the global banks or just maybe the super regionals, or uh, they're they're really really trying to look across the platform, which of course is much harder because of the the different constraints that different banks have. Sure, I mean yeah, like you say, I mean I recently spoke with uh, a relatively large uh, community develop well a relatively small forgive me community development financial institution, and I know that the Biden agenda is pushing you know, trying to figure out how to aid these institutions. And I guess today for financial institutions, that really needs automation, you know, whether it's, you know, loan turnover time, uh, loan turn, you know, turn rates or whatever it might be. Automation is the key to all of this. And looking at, I guess, the next stage, you know, artificial intelligence obviously is, you know, the thing that banks are talking about now and deploying automation, uh, automation related to AI. And, 
obviously the unintended consequence of this is possible bias. And I know that the FDIC is very much interested in figuring out how to shepherd these integrations without, you know, that unintended bias being a part of it. But I'm also interested in at, at banks, but I'm also interested in how the FDIC sees utilizing AI within their own organization. Is that something that you guys will be addressing? We are addressing uh, some aspects of AI and machine learning uh, within the uh, within the, the larger ecosystem, not within the FDIC, but within their constituent banks. And we are looking at that. In fact, we've been contacted by another regulator um, to uh, help them with uh, with bias, with identifying certain kinds of bias, uh, and you know, making the making them uh, making them aware of different uh, different sorts of approaches and things like that. Uh, so there are that's something that's very top of mind. Uh, I think with with everyone, um, it's one of the. I would say it's one of the unseen or unforeseen consequences of a proliferation of AI and machine learning tools. Is right now uh, machine learning tools are very accessible, uh, but having the being able to use them and understanding what the outputs are are two very different things. And I do worry about that a little bit. Uh, Sultan and I have talked about this at length. Um, the, the idea that while machine learning tools are out there, understanding what goes in and what comes out is really important. And, and that's, that's one of the things that uh, I spend a fair amount of time actually teaching uh, machine learning in, uh, in FinTech, like I'll be teaching it this semester. Um, and and that's, uh, I spend a fair amount of time on on bias um, in you know in different kinds of machine learning applications and things like that um, and and how to how to detect it how to how to look for it um, how to be very overt about about those kinds of things and so I think I think you bring up a great point I, and I don't think it can be brought up enough um, I, I I do worry about that though with this proliferation of tools. Um, a, People that are not trained um, and are not don't understand, you know, some of the impacts of what they're doing uh, as well as maybe they uh, they could. Um, I think it really calls for experts who understand econometrics and understand statistics, um, understand you know how these these different algorithms work because otherwise you do you you do end up with these things and. I really do believe that a lot of the bias that we see, and there have been some really, really bad cases of it, right? Some of the, the bias that we've seen, it's, it's unintentional. I really think it's, it's because in a lot of cases, the folks that are, that are, that are putting these together are just not as, um, you know, don't have as much experience as they might in, you know, in these areas, know what to look for, know how to measure for these kinds of things. I don't think people overtly go out and say, I'm going to do something bad. Uh, I think they just don't know. So talk to me a little bit about this, because I got into arguments with people about this, trying to explain it to them. Now, now I've got a teacher here, <laughs> very educated teacher. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the idea of bias, uh, sometimes that we have what's called omitted variable bias. So you, you may have, um, you may be putting together a, a machine learning algorithm to, for anything it could be. Um, it could be for credit decisioning or it could be for, you know, the flavor of uh, popsicles people like. It doesn't really matter. Um, and you're, you're putting, you're bringing in all of these variables, all these features that you want to include and you want to test to see, do these have a statistical significance? 
Well, if you don't even consider something, this omitted variable bias, if, if something was never a consideration, you may bias your results and not even, not even understand that there was something you should have included that you didn't. Um, you know, those kinds of things. Now, can we test for that? We can test for some of those kinds of things, not all of them, but we can, can test for some of them, but only if you're aware of the fact that you can do that. Um, you know, sometimes I, I tell students, if your if you're, you know, results look too good, be very suspect. Um, <laughs> there's, there's probably something wrong. Uh, I, not that you're not smart students, but be very suspect when your results are better than you expect. Um, and, and sometimes people don't, people aren't suspect. And so I think those kinds of things occur. As I said, I don't think most people go out with the intention of, you know, I'm, I want to do something wrong. I think they just don't know. Right, right. Well, explain to our audience the difference between AI and machine learning. So machine learning is a school under the AI umbrella. So it's part of the, the big AI umbrella. So artificial intelligence is, is rather large. Um, machine learning is part of that. And machine learning, what we, what we do is we use that to detect different kinds of patterns in data that wouldn't be detected otherwise. Um, and, they, and we use a lot of different algorithms to do this. So, uh, you know, we may test if we're, if we're doing something, um, not only a bunch of different variables, but a bunch of different algorithms that we use that are used that are really useful for different kinds of purposes. There are regression algorithms and there are clustering algorithms. And there's all kinds of things that are out there that we use to detect certain patterns and, and to forecast things. Because at the end of the day, almost all of these are used for forecasting purposes, um, sometimes for categorization and things like that. But usually we're going to even use those for some kind of forecasting purposes. Um, and they tend to be, uh, because of the, the, the nature of machine learning, they tend to be very, very, uh, they, they can be very accurate. Um, in, in doing this kinds of thing, but we're using them typically for those kinds of purposes, but there's not, you know, the one thing that, you know, I, I want people to, to make sure people understand is when we talk about machine learning, it's not like there's a, a machine learning algorithm. There are hundreds of these, uh, there are new ones being developed all the time. And every time you, you tweak one, you just created a new one. Uh, and we do that all the time. In fact, that's what I teach students how to do is this how you can adjust the algorithms, um, you know, once they learn the kind of the math behind them. So, um, yeah, those, those kinds of things occur. What do you think is the best application of artificial intelligence for a bank or a financial institute or for fintech? What do you see as some of the better applications of AI? Yeah, I think there are a number. Um, one of the things that I've always kind of been a fan of is uh, giving customers back their own data. And so, Think, of, think about it this way. If you're a small business and you're using a bank, any bank, doesn't really matter. Um, that bank has seen all of your cash flows. Not only are they seeing all the cash flows, they're seeing the times that the cash flows come in, both time as far as chronological time and business cycles, uh, macroeconomic cycles, things like that. Such that, and they also see all of a lot of your competitors um, in similar industries. And so they, they are seeing a lot of different things. What if the bank could use that and give it back to you and say, hey, we notice that, you know, in a certain business cycle, um, you are probably going to need, uh, you're probably going to ramp up your production. And so you may need a, a larger line of credit um, before they actually need it. Um, what if you could do things like that? Basically give people back their own data, because this is data that 
it might be hard for them to analyze. We were talking about, you know, using machine learning and computational uh, power uh, and things like that. Well, banks have a lot of that. What if, and, and, and you could do that for an individual too. What if you could, what if you gave them back their own data in a really consumable form that said, hey, it looks like, you know, this is happening. This might happen. And, and maybe it's, it's a little bit like um, when you go to Amazon and you buy a book and they said, people who buy this book also like these three. And you look at the other three and you're like, wow, I, that other one looks pretty good. Um, there's, there, there's a real value to that. I mean, sure, Amazon's trying to sell you another book, but they're sifting through all of this data that you could never do yourself. They can also see across this large spectrum of things that are occurring that you can't do. So I, I love the idea of giving you back your own data in a, in a really consumable form. Um, maybe it sells you more services. Maybe it just tells you something about your business. Um, maybe they tell you, hey, if you're a coffee shop in you know, Seattle and uh, it's a sunny day, you know, expect your business to be off 10%. I don't know. You know. There are all kinds of things like that that, that they can see. Um, but as, a, you know, as a, a small business owner or a medium-sized business owner, you may not be aware of. Sure. So, you know, if the FDIC is championing, you know, innovation within their own organization, as well as, you know, trying to promote it at financial institutions in the U.S., they turn to Duke. So why a university? Why do they turn to you? Why do they turn to your students? I think there are a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because these the students that they're dealing with in a, a lot of cases are very similar to what you would hire if you hired one of the, you know, big consulting firms, right? They're usually fairly early in their career people that would show up. Um, but the, they're in the process of learning the very latest techniques. So you mentioned machine learning and artificial intelligence. They're just learning the latest techniques right now. So they're going to be very, very up on, you know, the newest technologies and things along those lines. Um, they are also, I think, in a mode, and, and I love this about students. One of the things I love about working with students is they're not jaded by experience. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. You know, um, I've been around a little while. So if I see a problem, a finance problem, you know, in the back of my mind, it's like, well, I've seen something like this before. I have a pretty high degree of confidence how to solve for this problem. Students have never seen that before. So they will come at it in a totally different way. I can't tell you how many times that's happened where a student will come at a, a problem and they'll bring a solution. It's like, where did you come up with that? Um, and there'll be, well, I was working for, you know, Dabler Benz in Beijing last, uh, last year on an internship and we had this problem and it's like, wow, yeah, I've never worked for Daimler-Benz in Beijing before, so that's never going to be a consideration of mine. They're not jaded by experience. So they are, I think, sometimes the most objective of really, really educated sources that you can go to. You also have all these professors that are doing research, cutting-edge research. They're teaching. And so they're staying very, very apprised of the latest technologies. And students have these as a resource. Rather than just having maybe if you were hired a consulting firm, you know, one or two partners, they have a, a university full of uh, researchers. This is what they do for a living. So I think the, the advantage of using a university is really multidimensional. Um, but those are, the, those are the big ones that come to mind. Sure, sure. So talk to me about what might be the first, if I know you can't reveal too much, but what do you think if you had to list one, two, three, the first major one, two, three pushes for the FDIC in this new initiative and what Duke would be working on. So if you had to say, you know, we're working on, you know, 
X as far as automation, what would those three things or even one thing be? Yeah, I think that they're exploring a couple of different things. Uh, as I said, they are exploring um, some, and I can't be, I can't be too specific. They are exploring uh, some aspects, uh, and Sultan has talked about, you know, uh, digital um, assets and things along those lines. So they are exploring some things in that um, in that universe. They're exploring uh, some attributes of of banking of people that are consumers of banks. Um, they are certainly using students to, to explore some of uh, those kinds of things. And um, so those are, those are probably the top two uh, that, that we're working on. And then there's the third is a general automation of processes um, and, and how, how that can actually be facilitated. So those are kind of one, two, and three, I would say, uh, in no particular order. Uh, you know, the, the, some of, the, some of the, the, the factors around digital assets um, some of the uh, the attributes of uh, consumers um, and their interactions with banks, and then some of the attributes of uh, of automation, um, large scale automation within financial institutions. Well, that sounds like a good place to stop. I want to <laughs> thank you so much, Jimmy, for joining us. That wraps up this episode of The Buzz. Thanks for listening. And please let us know how we're doing at bankautomationnews.com. And of course, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. <laughs>